0: Hello, and welcome to the A to Z of Tech podcast, which today we're recording in our virtual studio. Uh, As always, I'm your host, Louise. And in this episode, we've made it all the way through the alphabet to you. So we're going to be discussing the topic of user Experience. I do have to say this isn't a topic that I am hugely familiar with. So I am really looking forward to this discussion today. Uh, I am delighted to say that we're joined by two brilliant guests, So from PwC, we have Roger Gagnon, who is our Chief Experience Officer, which I have to say is definitely one of the best job titles I've ever heard.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Louise.
0: Uh, And uh, alongside him, we have Patrick Glinsky, who is the President of Normative Design and who is joining us all the way from a very snowy Ottawa today.
2: Thank you so much for having me today, Louise.
0: Pleasure. Thank you both. Um, so Roger, I will at some point I'll definitely be asking you about that that job title. Um, but maybe first of all, you could give me and also our listeners, of course, an introduction at a, at a fairly basic level into what the term user experience actually means.
1: Um, the analogy that I always give with you, the user experience is um, that it's you know it, for, for folks who don't have much exposure to it um, is that it's like a park. Uh, picture yourself in a nice park with lots of footpaths. Um, We have a ton of those here in London. Um, Up, down, left, right. Um, But curiously, none on the diagonal. Um, The trodden footpath in the dirt that connects the southeast corner, so like the bottom right of the park, um, to the northwest corner, so the top left, um, is user experience design. Um, We call those things in our field desire lines. Um, and that's what UX designers do, really. Um, they design products and services and experiences based on what users want and need um, and desire. And um, to the extent that they can, they try to make those things useful, um, usable, and enjoyable. Um, and you can trace the, the discipline, maybe like not back to ancient Rome, <laughs> um, but at least as far back as like the 1970s and 80s um, with two big companies, uh, Xerox and Apple.
0: you're you're basically helping users to to tread the path they want to follow it sounds like
1: (laughs) absolutely yeah that's um that is first and foremost i think what ux and the the field of user experience design is all about
0: brilliant thank you um so before we sort of plow into the discussion i'd be really interested to hear a little bit about what both of your jobs entail and they sound they sound utterly fascinating i have to say um so, Roger, as the as the chief experience officer at PWC, what does that mean? What does your kind of day-to-day look like? And how did you end up in that role?
1: Um, you are right. I have the best job at the firm. Um, <laughs> I'm the, the CXO for um, a fast-growing part of our business called experience consulting, which brings together innovators, creators, uh, complex problem solvers and engineers to do what we call um, design. Uh, and build a better future for our clients and uh, the people that use their products and services and experiences and you know whether they call them customers citizens patients students um, we design uh, experiences that meet the needs of all of those different types of user Um, and i actually started my career um, as a scientist i was doing a master's degree uh, and i was at the university of calgary at the time um, in a field called perception, aging, and cognitive ergonomics, or PACE, um, and my home lab was the vision and aging lab because I was um, I was a vision scientist. Uh, my second home, though, was um, a lab called the Human Factors Lab, which was uh, run by a professor uh, named Jeff Carrad, still there today, I believe, um, and it's where I first started practicing UX. Although I didn't know that this was what it was called at the time. It actually didn't even have this name back in the early 2000s, but, um, I was helping companies design products and services that were just starting to get connected to the internet. Um, and, uh, at some point I chose not to pursue my PhD and instead joined the global digital agency, critical mass, which is headquartered in Calgary um alberta canada my hometown um and that's where i met patrick um and this might be the first time who is that you have two canadians on the podcast <laughs> because i am also I think Canadian. It, i
0: think it may be <laughs> absolutely well that i mean that was the perfect segue thank you roger patrick um otto are calling at this stage could you tell us a little bit about what your role looks like at normative and, and what the what the company does
2: Sure, absolutely. And uh, I have to say, after this conversation, I'm pretty sure this won't be the last time that you have two Canadians on either, because uh, <laughs> Roger, Roger and I like to talk. <laughs> anyway, We're going to be the best um, guests. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, maybe to start things off just a, a, a little bit of my background, um, you know, probably like a lot of your listeners, I've sort of struggled to explain to my mother exactly what I do for a job every day. Um, and I know it's a bit of an odd label, but Uh, I really consider myself what you would call an innovation practitioner. And uh, what that means is I play a lot of different roles, really all mashed into one person. So one day I'm researching people's experiences and preferences. The next I'm talking to a business about how they like to service people's needs. The next I'm looking into new and emerging technologies to figure out how they can support people in a better way. And then I'm designing how all those things really come together, both in terms of the the screens of the businesses that are put right in front of you. And then also within the operating context or political environment of a company. Um, The one sort of consistent thing for me is that sort of air quote labeled new. I really work with people in companies who are ready to find opportunities uh, by specifically making themselves uncomfortable by pursuing things that they're not used to. So for me, um, both through my collaborations with Roger and uh, with, uh, with other leaders, um, I've had the opportunity to sort of work in applying emerging technologies to businesses for the better part of almost 20 years. And over that time, I've been a web analytics practitioner, a digital strategist, an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, a startup advisor, And today, uh, like you you, uh, mentioned in your lovely intro, uh, I'm the president of Normative. We're a 13-year-old innovation company that helps corporate innovation teams think and work like startups. Uh, We really think that the big mistake that a lot of companies make when they approach innovation and especially technology led innovation is that they're really focused on themselves. You know, what can I build? How can I make money? What's our plan to build at scale? Well, we've worked with a lot of startups and we know uh, that the purpose of a startup and I'll I'll quote uh, the amazing Stephen Blank on this one is to find a customer. You know, you don't find a customer by sitting in your office. You don't find them definitely by like tinkering in a lab. You find them by building things fast and cheaply and testing them with real people. Uh, And as a company, that's really what we do. We call it evidence driven innovation, which is really about figuring out how to bring the lean startup philosophy to teams who are looking to explore new ways of making money. And uh, I hope that that's a pretty good bridge to today's conversation.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Patrick. I, I mean, actually kind of going back to Roger's analogy earlier then, it sounds as, as like uh, both of you who followed slightly untrodden paths in your careers to, to get where you are and, and to kind of forge the forge the roles that you have at the moment, which, um, which sounds really fascinating. Um, so, Roger, you mentioned uh, in your introduction, you know, what was happening in the nineteen seventies. If we if we rewind the clock a little bit, it's back back to back a couple of decades. So, where did the user experience as a as a concept or, or a term actually begin? But I mean, presumably, it predates the digital technologies that we're also used to nowadays.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it it goes a lot further back than my first experience with it. Certainly, in the early two thousands or or normative, um, who've been around for 13 years, maybe not to ancient Rome, <laughs> um, but uh, but like I said, at least back to the 70s and 80s with uh, two big companies, um, Xerox and Apple, um, and two very important people, at least in my estimation, a fellow named Don Norman and uh, his, his uh, longtime co-conspirator Jace, Jacob Nielsen. Um, but maybe, like, let's start with Xerox first. Um, PARC stands for the Palo Alto Research Company. Um, and uh, they were some of the people to, to first think about how people could have a more useful and usable relationship with technology. Um, and you, you don't hear a lot about Xerox anymore, um, but they famously invented um, the first graphical user interface. So the thing that we call the GUI, which is, um, you know, what we all interact with on our phones and laptops and, um, you know, pretty much anything connected to the Internet today um, and the mouse which uh, as some of you may remember, actually had a ball in it at one point but, um, and was a physical and tactile thing. Um, but they were the first company to bring um, this innovation uh, to market. They weren't the first company, however, to make it um, you know, globally relevant. And I think that was probably Apple. Um, you know, back in 1984, I think everybody probably remembers that iconic commercial you know, with the hammer being thrown at the screen. But the Apple Macintosh, basically brought together the GUI and the mouse into a brand new form factor. And I think, you know, showed the world that um, you could have things that were useful, usable and enjoyable, like, you know, from a tech perspective, you could have it all. Um, And in and around that same time, um, Don Norman published a very important book called the psychology of everyday things, which um, is now called the design of everyday things. And, uh, it's you know it, it has aged uh, incredibly well <laughs> um there's a, a ted talk um that you guys could look up um if you're interested um called three ways that design makes you happy um but uh you know Don norman published this book and uh the reason i think that it's important um and why i think he's largely regarded as you know one of the founding fathers of ux is because he argued that designing um, interfaces for uh, all of these new things, which, uh, you know, eventually started getting connected to the internet, um, needed to be designed well. And in order for that to happen, um, you needed uh, psychologists, you needed engineers, um, you needed people who understood physiology, um, you know, it wasn't just a designer working away on a product, you needed multidisciplinary collaboration and and this field of design and of user experience design um, sort of was born out of that philosophy
0: wonderful so am i so i'm then right in surmising that the the term user experience really became about as a, a result of the fact that manufacturing or design weren't just thinking about the function of a thing but also how the end user interacted with it and the experience that they got in their use of it
1: hundred percent. Yeah, that's exactly right.
0: Um, so Patrick, if I, if I can bring you back in, um, so what has that transition then looked like? Roger's obviously kind of explained to us a little bit about the, you know, the beginning of user experience and, and how it began to develop. How then has that transitioned to to where we are currently, do you think?
2: Uh, absolutely. So, I mean, wh- what's interesting is even how Roger sort of highlighted what the major areas of focus in, uh, sort of those earlier days were you know around the idea of like usability for example what we've seen over the last um, certainly 20 years that Roger and I have been working in this field um, we've seen a lot more considerations start to come into play so for example I, I still have a model that I learned early on into my career that I reference called the user experience honeycomb which comes from a, a gentleman by the <laughs> name of Peter Morville oh, the honeycomb. and Roger Roger last <laughs> because he absolutely still references it every once in a while as well and you know what was interesting was uh uh at the time there were a whole bunch of practitioners who who started thinking more broadly than just the usability of things so it started to expand our our thinking as practitioners to things like findability usefulness the credibility of the experiences that we're putting together how desirable are they and you know, really at the core of it, how valuable are they for people? And uh, again, in the early days of user experience design, certainly, uh, again, when Roger and I were, uh, were were playing in the early days of our career, um, what was interesting is the folks who were designing user experiences tended uh, tended to be really off to the side. You know, we were the tinkerers or the experimenters working on you know, these different types of uh, interactions that really had nothing to do with what the core business was. If you fast forward to today, it goes without saying digital strategy or digital transformation are core priorities to pretty much any organization you talk about. So as opposed to it being this thing off to the side that uh, the young people were doing or that the tech geeks were doing, now it's become core to organizational strategy. And so because of that, you know, it, it's really transitioned from just designing things that are usable to now really at the center of it, figuring out what's valuable to people.
0: Um, might you be able to give us a, a sort of a brief example of of this in practice? I know there was mention, for example, of the of the health sector earlier. Um, just a sort of a, a tangible tangible example would be lovely. Uh,
2: absolutely. So, I mean. You know, one of the the examples that I love uh, uh, talking about around sort of the the evolution of user experience design really comes to uh, uh, comes to fruition in like a lot of the interactions that we have at like point of sale. Roger and I both sort of uh, honed our chops at uh, working with banks, um, trying to figure out new types of digital interactions. And you know, we all uh, hopefully many of us remember the early days when things was were all cash driven. Now, as sort of time has advanced and user experience design has advanced, we have a transformation that has happened at the point of sale terminals, where, you know, you went from needing to fish a couple of coins out of your pocket to then uh, you were putting a a credit card in front of people, then you were tapping. And now we're at the point today where uh, designers have really focused on dramatically reducing the friction that happens at the point of sale so that it's so seamless for an individual that they're in and out really, really quickly with really uh, very little effort. So an example like that is really a great example of how you have a whole bunch of different capabilities really coming together to design something that is incredibly valuable to a user, that, that the need has always been there, but now it's way more usable, it's way more findable, it's way more desirable and certainly way more useful. And it's really because people have spent the time understanding you know, what are the needs of people at the point of sale? What are the frustrations that they experience? In parallel to that, they've worked with technologists to understand. How can systems work together or talk to each other in the background in order to enable a set of experiences? And then, of course, we have a whole bunch of uh, different technologies and different systems working together uh, in sort of like an orchestra in order to enable an experience that otherwise would not have been possible in the
0: past. It sounds as though when user experience is done really well, you don't even notice you're interacting with something. It's just it's just a seamless interaction, and it's just life.
2: Yeah, almost invisible. You know? Yeah, absolutely. As as user experience designers, we often talk about sort of the idea of, of friction. Um, you know, tangibly, you can think about like the grittiness of sandpaper against your skin, super uncomfortable, right? And uh, if you have sandpaper against your skin, you're you're going to do absolutely everything you can to get that feeling away from you. Um, user experience designers kind of think of the world the same way, where we're like what is that friction what are those little points of frustration Mm -hmm. or annoyance that are happening in the interactions that are that are around us every day
1: it's so interesting that you mentioned friction though patrick because um i think you know we've gotten to the point where everything is frictionless and i'm not sure that that that's always a good thing like I think something should have some friction in them. Like you shouldn't be able to cash your pension out on a whim, for example. There should probably be some friction in that process. You shouldn't be able to cancel your health insurance um, in the same way that you one-click buy on Amazon. Um, I, I think the it's it's really interesting. You mentioned the behavioral economics team. You know, of course, um, we have one and we work very closely with them um, at PwC. And you know, they they do things like help us build friction into experiences um, so that we actually, you know, get the user to pause and take a breath, maybe, um, and see if that action is worth taking, um, you know, after a short period of time. We've yeah, we've I, all been like running around chasing
2: friction for so long. It's so interesting to me that we're like putting it back in now on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a it's a great point, right? Um, like to to exactly what you're saying. Designers have always had sort of an ethical responsibility to do the right thing to support the people that they're trying to serve. I think a lot of the times, you know, we'll look at things purely from a who's contracting us perspective, um, you know, and, and uh, start to imagine, okay, well, what are new ways to sell people? Or what are new ways to transact more easily so that people forget how much money that they're spending? And you know this is <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it's an it's an interesting and pretty awkward reality of the design field, right? Um, in parallel to that, though, of course, Roger, we, like we have huge ethical responsibilities to do the right thing for uh, people, and as you say, uh, in many instances, it would be introducing friction in. Uh, for example, for things like uh, privacy and security, um, which I which I think is a, a great area where there is lots of friction that's been introduced in order to prevent things like fraud. The introduction of those things, what becomes interesting though, right, is that, you know, it all comes into requirements and constraints. Uh, when you have a requirement to uh, help to prevent fraud or help to prevent losses, then you'll do things like introduce two-step authentication or introduce that person who calls you up on your phone when a, tra- a weird charge has gone in, uh, gone through. Of course, those are intentional points of friction, but they're also ones designed to uh, offer different points of protection, exactly, uh, which are very much in line with you know an organization setting a set of requirements and constraints. I think that really begs the question, though, whose requirements and whose constraints are we designing for? And that's what has made user experience design, such an interesting field uh, uh, to be in today.
0: So you meant, you both mentioned there's some considerations that are taken taken in as part of the design, the design phase and design process. So, you know, ethics, um, security. As we look forward, you know, as we go forward into the future, as user experience develops, some of the technologies that we interact with become ever more integrated into, it, into our day-to-day lives. You know, thinking about for example like wearable technologies is probably a great example to to flag there how do you think these considerations will begin to evolve and, and change in the next few years as part of ux
1: um I, mean, I think ux designers have to take a lot more input modes into account now than they ever used to um, at least when I was when I was growing up in the field you know it used to just be about clicks and now it's not just about clicks anymore it's about touches and ch- and taps and and clicks, of course, um, and gestures but also gestures, and voice input, and ambient input, and declarative input. Like there are just so many ways that we can interact with, um, you know, with the world or with the digital world around us now. That uh, experienced designers and user experience designers, in particular, um, have to be a lot more thoughtful about how um, a, a brand's product, service, or experience is delivered. Um, it used to be a lot easier. I think it's a lot, a lot more complex now.
0: And Patrick, what, what do you think is is the future is going to look like? for user experience, um, you know, are we all going to end up with with microchips and and as cyborgs <laughs> as part of the the user experience of the future?
2: <laughs> we have <Yeah>. talked about <laughs>
1: this, and I volunteer <laughs> to be a cyborg.
2: <laughs> I mean, uh, the first thing that I would say is. Uh, you know, there's no shortage of user experience designers who uh, are very in, uh, die-hard science fiction fans. So, you know, uh, you can look to uh, many examples of science fiction and how the interactions that we have, either in place now or developing, uh, are uh, uh, very much influenced by uh, famous science fiction writers. In fact, with a number of organizations that we've worked in the past, uh, work with in the past, we've actually done uh, science fiction scans and actively looked to examples where science fiction authors have explored what is the future of healthcare, for example, or what is the future of financial services, and tried to actually take examples of inspiration or literally interactions that have been envisioned from those. And really starts to apply them to the things that are in front of us today of uh, some of the considerations that user experience designers are, are bringing in when they're actually creating their work. So, for example, there's a major, major discussion right now within the field around ethics and inclusion. Because, you know, in the early days of digital user experience, you had a pretty interesting community who often got into it through a lens of technology. Um, you know, that groups are really educated, in many instances, sort of privileged group. And eventually, the community really realized that it was designing for itself, not necessarily for the audience uh, around them. So you started to see uh, different organizations and different people introduce different types of tools to better empathize with, you know, Uh, who the user is, and what they really want. Now, as the field matures, there's a really deeper understanding and appreciation of the diversity of human needs. And that's everything from, you know, reflecting marginalized communities to, you know, considering people of all different types of abilities. And historically, that might have been driven by policy. But today, I think the communication, uh, pardon me, the community has really taken on an important uh, important role in sort of, an important role in sort of evolving uh, the practice to focus on these things. I think in parallel to that, and uh, you know into the science fiction realm, you know like like you were mentioning before, there are a lot of sort of views of the future, and uh, how this uh, get applied to us today sounds very far out. You know, computer microchips in our heads uh, the, these are, uh, sort of the, uh, stereotypical examples of, you know, what the future of user experience looks like when you think about it today, though, you know, probably all of us have a phone sitting somewhere on our desk at the moment. So while it might not be implanted in our brain to fully reduce the friction of data entry, the reality is, is we are already, whether you want to call it cyborgs, or, uh, we like to use the term that normative centaurs, you know, we are really already a human-computer fusion, a hybrid of of humanity, because we're so reliant on the technologies that are in front of us to influence what our experiences look like. Whether that's you sitting in the car and putting on a mapping program that helps to predict uh, what the fastest route to get from point A to point B is, um, that's a a great example where I, I think today, if I was trying to drive across my city I might struggle to actually figure out a route, whereas 10 years ago, if I was driving in the car, I would know exactly where to go. That's because today, uh, humans have really started to uh, rely on the technologies around us to influence what our experiences look like. Just to pick up on that science fiction point, I mean, it's not just classic science fiction, you know, like
1: the the Star Trek tricorder, for example. Um, You know, you don't need to look that far back to see examples of Um, really great science fiction work that ended up as, um, you know, consumer facing innovation. Like think about Minority Report, for example. Um, You know, in that that famous scene with Tom Cruise scrubbing the image and taking, um, you know, content from one giant screen and literally throwing it onto another screen and picking up and picking it up and walking with it. Um, I have literally sitting on my desk right now um, a MacBook Pro and an iPad um, Pro and Sidecar, which allows me to literally throw content from one device onto another. Um, And you know, experiences like that, uh, people don't know that they want them until they see them. Um, So you don't have to look that far back to find modern examples of science fiction influencing the user experience of everyday products.
0: So I think my takeaway from this discussion is that we're basically already living in the science fiction world and that we are already all human (laughs) computers. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, Definitely. So from one cyborg to two others, um, that's been uh, such a fascinating discussion. Thank you both so much for joining me. Um, I I know we've already mentioned a couple of resources, but do either of you have any other um any other resources that you think would be useful for our listeners to, to look into if if they have more interest in this topic?
2: Absolutely. So uh, I'd encourage you all to visit Normative's website, normative.com, where we uh, have a very healthy blog talking about uh, innovation and user experience. Like I mentioned before, I'd strongly suggest you check out uh, Peter Morville's classic user experience, Honeycomb, which is such a great tool just to hold the things in your head that are really important for you to think about as you're creating user experiences. And if you ever want uh, a little bit of interesting uh, manga career advice, check out Daniel Pink's Adventures of Johnny Bunko. It's classic
1: <laughs> manga career advice. I love.
0: Um, and Roger, is there anything that you would like to to suggest i
1: mean if you ever want to go down the rabbit hole um, of ux and design then absolutely start with um you know the two folks that i mentioned at the top of the podcast don norman um, and the design of everyday things and um like i said if you just google three ways that design makes you happy and watch that video i guarantee it will be 20 minutes well spent um, and jacob nielsen um you know again uh, one of the founding fathers of our discipline and um, a super interesting fellow. And you can check out their website, um, Nielsen Norman Group, and uh, they will be am- able to do a much better job of giving you the history of UX and where it came from than I was able to do today.
0: That's perfect. Thank you both so much again. Um, I think it has been a, a, such an interesting conversation um, and a real pleasure to have you both on um listeners as well thank you very much for joining the three of us um and don't forget as always to rate us to subscribe to the series and to join us for the next episode which will be looking at the letter v